you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Martinez. Thanks for uh, spending the day with us. Coming up, there have been a lot of questions about which health conditions are being prioritized for the coronavirus vaccine right now, and we've got the answers coming up. But first, we're going to head over to Echo Park Lake, where, according to the Los Angeles Times, the park will be fenced off and closed for renovations at some point this week. Now, to do that, large homeless encampment made up of more than 100 tents would have to be removed, displacing the people living there. The issue at the lake has drawn criticism from both Echo Park residents who are upset about the encampment and activists who are working with the unhoused people living there who say that the situation has been handled poorly by city officials. Activists warn that a sweep of the homeless could happen as early as tomorrow. Now, to get a sense of what's going on, we turn to Benjamin Oreskes. He's the general assignment reporter at the L.A. Times, and he joins us now from Echo Park Lake. Benjamin, welcome back. Good to be with you. Now, before we get to what's happening right now where you're standing, uh, tell us when this encampment began and and how the situation has evolved. So there have always been homeless people in Echo Park. Talking to residents who've lived here 30, 40 years, they will tell you that people always slept in the park. But starting in the fall of 2019 and into the beginning of 2020, a much larger encampment started to sprout up. Uh, at the beginning of the year, or the beginning of 2020, um, the Rec and Parks Department attempted to clear that encampment, uh, and it inspired a sort of standoff between activists and homeless, uh, along with homeless residents and law enforcement. They were able to sort of prevent that uh, sweep at that time, and over the last year, this encampment has grown to sort of take much of the west side of the lake over. And that encampment has, as you said in your intro, enraged many residents who live in the community, but also emboldened many of the homeless people who live there to sort of band together to create something that kind of resembled a commune where there was a a pantry, a garden, and sort of some semblance of order uh, in terms of trying to keep their area clean because they recognized they were sharing this with a community that would come there with their families on the weekends or sell empanadas or tacos. And that has sort of, it's kind of become this microcosm of a lot of the standoffs or conflicts we're seeing in communities across Los Angeles. Now, you broke the story this morning that Councilmember Mitch O'Farrell plans on removing the encampment at Echo Park Lake and is closing the park for repairs. So tell us about his approach and what does he hope to accomplish uh, with this plan? I worked on this story with Doug Smith. Uh, We have been sort of tracking what's been going on in the park for the last couple of months. And throughout the period of time when we were kind of reporting out there, we heard from residents where law enforcement would come around and say, we're going to start enforcing the rules that are on the books that prevent people from sleeping in the park. And throughout the reporting of a story we uh, published maybe two weeks ago, we spoke with Councilman O'Farrell, who has long been on the record saying the park needs to be cleared. We're going to do it in the most humane way possible. And we're going to get people into hotels and shelters of any kind that they want. Uh, That has sort of happened. But throughout Mm -hmm. that period of time, We've never heard from the councilman or from anyone in the city a specific date of this is when you have to leave by. We also heard that there has been damage to the park. Uh, The the councilman and the Parks and Recs Department have told us about $600,000 worth of it. And it would require the park to be fenced off completely and closed. So, again, we never got confirmation of when this is taking place. But I heard from my sources who didn't want to be named because this has been kept sort of secret uh, that this uh, sort of sweep 
and closure of the park would come this week, uh, probably on Thursday. Tomorrow, we expect to see notices put up uh, that will tell people you can't be here anymore and that a fence would sort of be constructed. Again, this is a very fluid situation. So yeah. uh, plans were subject to change, but that's the latest information we've had. I've been out in the park all morning. I'm sitting in my car about a block away from it, and we've seen buses uh, being run by LASA, the Homeless Services Authority, taking people to uh, Project Broomkey, hotels being rented by the city. But there are still lots of tents out there, not as many as we saw maybe two, three weeks ago, but there are still people out there who say, we're not leaving. And one woman today told me she's going to chain herself to a tree. Wow. Benjamin, um, the plans, the, the repairs and the renovations that uh, that are going to happen there, or, or at least plan to happen there, do we know if they'll include maybe any structures that would make it difficult for people to set up tents, say, in the future? That's a good question. We know very little about the plans, uh, about what's going to be done in the park. Uh, the Parks and Rec Department sort of released a planning document last week uh, that said the anticipated construction date would be in March 2021. Uh, they discussed how they need to repaint the boathouse uh, where people sort of rent swan boats and they have to re-turf a lot of the grass. Uh, install new LED lights, uh, new water fountains, fix the bathrooms. But it said very little about kind of anti uh, ways to prevent people from sleeping. But we know very little. The Parks and Rec Department uh, has not been very uh, cooperative in answering our questions. Now, on Twitter yesterday, O'Farrell posted this about the plan. This work, which is ongoing, seeks to accomplish two of my top priorities, putting our most vulnerable on a pathway to wellness and stability by providing a safe, secure environment and ensuring that Echo Park Lake remains a public space for all to enjoy during park hours. Uh, but Ben, has he confirmed anything about timing and the actual plan of where people will be moved to? I think that that statement, if you look very closely, it does not say anything about that. And I have heard from unhoused residents, housed residents, activists, uh, many people even in government who are wondering when this will go down. Uh, the park continues to be an attraction for people who come with their families, go in the swan boat. Uh, I would, I've heard from residents who want to know if their park is going to be closed. You know, we, we're still in this pandemic where people are told to be home. Uh, and the park has been an outlet for many to get fresh air, to see their friends at a distance. And for them, they are as uncertain about this as the homeless people are as well. So to this point, we've heard very little from the councilman by way of a confirmation of uh, a when this closure will take place. As for your question about where the people are going, uh, the city has rented several hotels uh, for homeless people. They've been doing this throughout the pandemic. And uh, Mayor Garcetti has said that he wants to prioritize placements in those hotels for several locations, including Echo Park Lake. So that's where many of the people have gone. And I don't have the latest numbers, but I can tell you that as of a couple of weeks ago, they got upwards of 50 people from the park into one of these hotels. So there's been a big effort at outreach and at making sure rooms are available for all these people. City officials insist to me that everyone who is in the park has been offered a chance to go into some form of shelter. Uh, we've heard from people that they haven't been asked about that, but there definitely has been a big effort to do so. We're talking to uh, L.A. Times reporter Benjamin Oreskes about the situation at Echo Park Lake. Now, earlier this month, you published a feature on the unhoused people living there. Um, and you mentioned how it, it, it feels, at least from, from your article, that it is a sense of community there, that uh, it's not just random people just all of a sudden sitting there. It's, it's, it's like a real kind of just a commune in, in some ways. Tell us about who these people are and where they're coming from. I think you're sort of seeing people who kind of span the spectrum of what drives people into homelessness. Uh, you're seeing people who have lost their jobs during the pandemic and lost their housing. You're seeing people who are struggling with mental health uh, and substance abuse uh, problems. And you're seeing people who have flocked to this place because it feels safer than the other options they have. 
Uh, I've done a lot of recording in underpasses in Los Angeles. Uh, those are dangerous places, these people say. In this community, it's sort of strength in numbers, safety in numbers, and they find it to be a place that is kind of better in a menu of bad options. They prefer it to a shelter where there are strict rules about when you can come and go. And uh, there have been huge outbreaks of COVID in these shelters. And I think for some people, they chafe at rules about curfew or what you can and cannot bring into your room. So there is a sense of freedom that you see from people down here. Uh, I would also add that the encampment at the park has been a sort of magnet for activists and outreach yeah. workers uh, who bring food. And, and that is something that people really appreciate, along with bathrooms and, and potable water. So th the reasons that people come here are, in fact, quite rational. Uh, and if you talk to them, you sort of hear that. You know, L.A. has become a, a dense, crowded city, one that uh, craves for green open spaces. But, uh, Benjamin, how, me, how do we square that desire with the reality that there are a lot of people who have nowhere to go and rely on any available open space just to exist and survive? If I had to answer that question, I, I think I'd run for mayor, maybe. Yeah, uh, I, 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 think, I think that's sort of the crux of what we're seeing in this park. Uh, and you see this across the county and, and frankly, across the state. And there's very little affordable housing that is available to people. And there's very little shelter that's available to people. Uh, the efforts that the city, county, and state have taken during COVID have really helped. But at the same time, those efforts have come when shelters that have normally been the form of interim housing used the most have severely reduced their capacity. So you've seen an expansion of the use of hotel rooms that are rented. But that comes when shelters are at half capacity. So as one thing grows, another thing shrinks. And without a large growth in housing, I think this is a problem that will sort of persist in our city and we'll see standoffs like this in communities across it. Uh, that being said, you know, we're seeing major efforts at purchasing hotels. The city and county purchased over 2,000 hotel rooms at, at, along with apartment buildings last year. I would expect to see a similar sort of attempt to do a project like that again. But Without massive infusions of affordable housing, we're just going to sort of see these encampments persist. Benjamin, what do you think the situation looks like by Thursday? I, I'm not sure, to be honest. I, I think that I keep hearing from sources that this is still on, this is still happening. But, you know, depending on how many activists come out and the sort of landscape of things, we could maybe see this uh, sort of encampment cleanup delayed. But uh, to be honest, it's something that we're going to be tracking. I, I know that me and several other reporters, along with photographers, will be out here uh, kind of watching this go down. Um, and maybe we should check in on Thursday. Absolutely. We'll, uh, we'll have you on speed dial. That's Benjamin Oreskes, uh, general assignment reporter for the L.A. Times. Benjamin, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. 
one lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com slash sweeps. Es un buen tipo mi viejo Que anda solo y esperando Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Ian Martinez. Quick update. Yesterday, we talked on the show about how trials of the AstraZeneca vaccine set it to, to be effective in adults. But some questions are now being raised today after an independent review board said that the company may have only used partial data when it announced those results. Now, for its part, AstraZeneca says it's working with health officials and promised it would provide more detailed analysis of the vaccine within 48 hours. All right. Now, negotiating daily life in the pandemic is difficult enough, but it's even tougher for people with a compromised immune system. Each and every decision is crucial since one misstep could prove deadly. KPCC's Jackie Fortier spoke to a family in South Pasadena that found a creative way to try to protect its most vulnerable member. Last spring, when California began its coronavirus lockdown, Mark Deegan was scared. Just going to the store gave me anxiety. Eight years ago, he'd had two organs transplanted to help rectify the damage caused by type 1 diabetes. It was a kidney and pancreas simultaneous transplant. Mark has to take anti-rejection medications so that the transplanted organs continue to work, but they make it hard for his body to fight off infections. For Mark, getting the coronavirus could mean a stint in the intensive care unit or even death. So his family was careful, wearing masks and isolating. But over the summer, his medical situation changed. In June, I started rejecting my kidney. I was in the hospital a little bit over a week. They bombarded me with anti-rejection medication, so it brought my immune system down even further. To keep him safe from the coronavirus, Mark quarantined from his wife and two teenage children in a separate apartment for two months after he left the hospital. That was really hard. After he got back home, the family continued to isolate. Their two teenagers went to virtual high school, and everything seemed okay until one day in October when Mark told his son Sam to grab the car keys. He walked into the kitchen, and he was just like, I don't feel so good. Can you drive me to the ER? And I was just like, what's going on? I think I have a heart attack. Mark was right. His body was still rejecting the transplanted organs, causing a blood clot and a subsequent heart attack. He spent another week in the hospital. I've been recovering since, but you start adding things on top of each other, right? I have my my transplant, my immunosuppression, heart condition. So everybody was on high alert. In December, only people over the age of 65 could get vaccinated. Mark is 50. As COVID cases surged and the threat increased, Mark and his doctor had no idea when he could get vaccinated. So the family hatched a plan. My name is Lisa Henderson, and I am in the Novavax trial. My name is Aubrey Deachin. I am in the Moderna team trial. My name is Sam Deachin, and I am in the Novavax trial. That's Mark's wife, daughter, and son, 
all three of them are in clinical vaccine trials. Mark's wife, Lisa Henderson, found out about them on Facebook. It just seemed like a, an obvious way for us to protect him because he wasn't in line yet to get a shot. Despite the risk of side effects, Lisa was afraid that she and her kids could be waiting months for a federally authorized vaccine while Mark remained vulnerable. In the hopes of creating an immunized bubble around him, Lisa and Sam volunteered for the adult Novavax tests. But it's not a guarantee. Sam, who's 18, knows he could have received the placebo. There's a 66.6% chance that I'm vaccinated, and there's a 33.3% chance that I'm not. Sam says being in the trial is pretty easy. Every day they answer simple health questions on an app, and every few weeks they get their blood tested at a clinic first two times they shoot you with a, either placebo or the real thing. Aubrey is in a Moderna trial for teens. She's a freshman in high school and at 15 is too young for any of the currently authorized vaccines. It feels like you're being part of the solution instead of being part of the problem. Just like with the other COVID vaccine trials, she doesn't know if she got the actual vaccine or a placebo. She says it's a big topic of conversation with her friends who were also in the trial. I was talking to my best friend and I was like, did you get any symptoms? Because she got her first shot. And she was like, no. And then my other friend was like, oh my gosh, my arm hurt. Her mother, Lisa, has helped other people sign up for the vaccine trials and says it's given her a sense of purpose. I can't control COVID, but what I can control is whether I can get other people that want to be in the trial to be in the trial to ultimately help everybody. Mark is grateful. These trials have been a godsend for me, even though I'm not part of them. I'm, I'm not allowed to be in them. Just the fact that everybody around me cared enough to do that is it's incredibly humbling. As part of the clinical trials, Lisa, Sam, and Aubrey all expect to get the actual experimental vaccines in the next few weeks if they haven't already. But the family doesn't know how well the trial vaccines work, and Mark is still immunocompromised. He needs a new kidney. Still, they've made it to one important goal. Solid organ transplant recipients are now prioritized. And last week, Mark got the second shot of the Moderna vaccine. Covering health, I'm Jackie Fortier. All right, now about those pre-existing health conditions like Mark's, there's some confusion about what kind of conditions are currently being prioritized for the vaccine. So we pulled in Jackie Fortier uh, once again to explain. Now, Jackie, at the end of your story, you said that uh, solid organ transplant recipients are now being prioritized for the COVID-19 vaccine in California. What other conditions are covered? Yeah, the state health department list includes people with cancer, chronic kidney disease, people who are pregnant and people with Down syndrome, though that is not an exhaustive list. Okay, now those health conditions you just listed are not respiratory. I would think that people with breathing problems such as asthma would be at the top of the list since COVID-19 affects the respiratory system. Yeah, you're right. Uh, COPD is on the list and that is respiratory, but a lot of these are mainly conditions that suppress the immune system, which of course makes it more difficult for your body to fight off the coronavirus. Uh, The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has a list of conditions that it updates based on the latest science that have been proven to have worse health outcomes. And when I say that, I mean hospitalization or death for a person who has one of these conditions who gets COVID-19. Asthma is being studied. The CDC says people with moderate to severe Severe asthma may be at increased risk. So, I mean, if you have moderate or increased risk asthma, you know, talk to your doctor and see what they think. But your health condition doesn't need to be on the state's list, right? 
No, it doesn't. And you won't have to prove your health condition at a vaccine site. California is using the honor system, which is what some other states have done. At a vaccine site, you'll be asked to sign a statement saying that you meet the criteria. And the goal of putting people who are medically fragile first is to get them vaccinated because, again, they're more likely to get very sick or die if they get infected. The virus is still circulating. I mean, L.A. County is averaging 48 deaths every day. The other reason they aren't requiring proof of a medical condition is so that people who don't have a doctor or don't have health insurance or maybe in the country illegally aren't dissuaded from getting vaccinated because, you know, we need everyone we can to get the shot who's able to. Now, there are limited doses. So if you have a low level health condition, try to wait until we have more doses and appointments available. We're hearing that will be later in April. So people who are medically fragile can get vaccinated first. All right. That's KPCC's health reporter, Jackie Fortier. Jackie, thanks a lot. Thanks. All right, keeping with vaccines, we talked about Blue Shield's part in the state's vaccine rollout yesterday and about how pretty much all of California's counties rejected the initial offer to work with the insurance provider. Well, we have an update on that. Recently, the state amended the deal, so agreements are between counties and the state itself and include a partnership with Blue Shield. Now, Los Angeles County announced it signed on, and L.A. Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer says the partnership with Blue Shield will help vaccine distribution be both efficient and equitable by managing the statewide online appointment system called MyTurn. Also, because the company offers improved data tracking dashboards. The statewide data reporting is key for the state to be able to provide a clear picture of vaccination efforts within the county to the federal and state partners and most importantly, to the public. So counties get to keep their current infrastructure of vaccine providers in place. But uh, local health departments will have to work with Blue Shield to recommend how much vaccine the county should get from the state's supply. Riverside County signed with the state last week. Meanwhile, in a rare move, Orange County voted to sign on directly with Blue Shield for its vaccine efforts. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.
Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Amy Martinez. Gaze into the ocean off Laguna Beach during the day, and you'll notice the water looking a little ruddy. But take a look after the sun sets, and you'll see a glowing greenish-bluish light show in the waves. Yeah, that bioluminescent algae is back in bloom in Orange County waters. Clarissa Anderson has been keeping an eye on the tide. She's executive director of the Southern California Coastal Ocean Observing System located at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Clarissa, welcome to Take Two. Hi, thank you. Great to be here. Now, tell us, uh, so what's going on with this uh, bioluminescence? What is creating it? Well, as you um, so aptly described, it's an algae. It's a microscopic algae. These are like the, the, the plants of the ocean. They're the base of the food web. Uh, but certain ones do create this light show. And they often bloom around here in spring, uh, sometimes in fall and summer. And at night, when you can actually see the light, the light is being caused by the the crashing of the waves and the, I guess you would call it shear or the turbulence that's stirring up those cells is what's turning on the chemical reaction that gives you the light show. Okay, so that is, what's the reason though for the critters lighting up? For, for them, is it some kind of biological survival reason or is it just basically just because they're crashed, the waves are crashing on them? <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of theories out there, but um, one, one of the big ones has to do with predation. So. Mm. Um, it is thought that it has something to do with scaring off or alerting um, predators. Predators for these guys are things like other microscopic organisms that we call zooplankton, so the kind of the microscopic animals that feed on them. And so one of one of the big theories is that it's about that. There are other things that might be at play um, that we could go into, but uh, that's the big one. All right. Now, what brings them to Southern California shores? Well, uh, this time of year, we see uh, a lot of circulation in the coastal ocean that brings nutrients to the surface. And those nutrients are important for the growth of this organism. Um, it tends to like a lot of nutrients during this sort of phase. It can do well with some of the colder water that we're seeing right now. It also likes to bloom in warm water. So you'll see it in fall and summer. It's pretty flexible. But this is, for the last four or five years, we've seen it just about every spring. So this is caused by a red tide. As a scientist, uh, Clarissa, what tools do you use to detect that? Well, so as you noted, the, the, col the color of the water by day is this sort of red, ruddy brown. Yeah. Um, a lot of different phytoplankton can cause the water to turn that color. But what these particular ones do is they actually um, absorb a lot of light in the UV range of the spectrum. And so we have this ability now with some of the new ocean color remote sensing satellites that are in space to look at that part of the electromagnetic spectrum and actually detect these blooms from space just based on that um, interesting signal that they put off because of certain, certain kinds of amino acids that they produce. Satellite technology tracking down the glowing plankton. I mean, wow, what a, I mean, that, what a connection from space all the way to the sea. Yeah, it's fascinating. And a lot of algae blooms, whether they're harmful or, or not, are tracked this way. We call that ocean color. We're talking to Clarissa Anderson, executive director of the Southern California Coastal Ocean Observing System located at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Um, last year, I remember, uh, Clarissa, we had a, a record bloom of this uh, bioluminescent algae. Uh, there were some false rumors that it had to do with the pandemic. Now, it wasn't related to all that, but can you tell us why you know, there was such a big bloom last year in particular? 
Yeah, it was an interesting coincidence with the um, onset of our, our first shutdown with COVID-19. Um, we're really still looking into all the causes of that bloom. But one thing that was interesting last year, if you remember, we had a very wet spring. Yeah. So um, rain was about 200% above background levels in, in March, April of last year. And then that was followed by some record warming that lasted um, well over a month in the surface ocean. So you had kind of a perfect storm of nutrients, um, both from offshore and from land that helped get it going and then some interesting circulation that kept it going and then warming that just really fed it with zero storms no stirring no mixing didn't get pushed offshore and that led to the i think the biggest one we've seen on record from santa barbara to baja uh, and we had extensive fish kills if you recall but it really wasn't caused by the pandemic it just happened at the same time that we had this interesting set of conditions um, in the ocean that sort of set up that system. Close, Clarissa, I remember uh, last year when you know when that happened, everyone was saying, well, well, you know, imagine what happens if no one trashed through the beaches and through the uh, through the shore. Imagine how great it would all be. But yeah, one thing didn't necessarily have to do with the other. That's right. I mean, I think these these algae aren't going to really be affected by whether we're trafficking the beach a lot or there's a yeah. lot of boats out there. Uh, but 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 animals and wildlife certainly are. And so we saw certain we certainly saw effects on marine mammal and animal life um, as a result of that lack of uh, pressure from human use. Now that uh, really big bloom meant uh, there was a lot uh, you know to look at, a lot of beautiful bioluminescence to look at, and uh, you know a lot of people did run to the beach to to take a look at it. But it also had some side effects. Can you explain that? That's right. So um, it was it was interesting because it was hard to tease out from what was happening with COVID. But we were hearing a lot of reports of surfers who were surfing in those red tides having respiratory effects. Wow. Um, yeah. And so we put out a survey and it turns out that um, over a thousand people responded. About 25 percent of those people said that they experienced uh, a respiratory distress after surfing in this water. Um, and then they would take, say, a, say a Claritin or an Allegra and it would, it would clear up. So it wasn't COVID-19 that was causing that. Um, and we're still looking into it. It's not well documented, but there is a, a history of anecdotal evidence that there is something about these blooms that leads to that kind of distress. And we need to look more into it. Are some kinds of algae toxic all, you know, just all the time? Some are toxic a lot of the time. And there okay. is one that blooms a lot here in California. It's a different one. You don't see it so much. It doesn't really turn the, the water red or brown, um, but it is one that you'll see when marine mammals like sea lions strand on beaches in a lot of times in spring and in summer. I'm sure many of your listeners have seen that um, animals bobbing their head, looking quite distressed. And that's, that's, that's a neurotoxin that an algae produces a lot of the time here in California, and it's called domoic acid. And we really worry about that one because it gets into shellfish. So it gets into our food supply, but it also really harms the um, animals like sea otters, seals, dolphins, you name it. Are you monitoring that uh, in these waters here in California? That's right. So we're monitoring um, all of the potentially harmful species and we monitor weekly for domoic acid. Uh, we also have models that look at it daily that give you like a forecast, like a weather forecast for all of California. Mm -hmm. And those, those show you exactly what the likelihood is of encountering that toxin anywhere on the coast. So this bioluminescence that uh, we're enjoying right now um, on our shores, are, is it going to move up the coast or move down the coast? And if so, what's the best way to view it? Any, any suggestions uh, you might have? Yeah, it's a good question. We have a hard time predicting that spatial extent. It's been popping up all over um, your your area, um, my area down here in San Diego, but it's been coming and going. Um, I don't yet see any indication that we're going to see the kind of extent, extensive bloom that we saw last year. Uh, but it could just be that we have these short-lived blips every two weeks along the coast and then the season is over. And that's more typical. Really quick, you've seen this a lot. Do you, do you still get wowed by seeing it? 
Oh, oh yeah. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. It's beautiful. Um, got to take my kids to see it for the first time last year uh, and it was, yeah, it's phenomenal. Nice. Uh, Clarissa Anderson is executive director of the Southern California Coastal Ocean Observing System located at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Clarissa, thank you very much. Thank you. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com events. See you there.